0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship of Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is The Weeds. I'm John Gulen Hill. Families in America are changing. We're getting married later in life, if we're getting married at all. We're having fewer kids in life, too, and that's if we're having kids at all. And on top of that the cost of childcare is at an all-time high. These differences in our families aren't just impacting the way we raise kids and build community, but the ways we take care of our loved ones as they age, too. More than half of Americans in their 40s and a quarter of adults overall are becoming part of the so-called sandwich generation, meaning they're taking care of children, but also caring for aging relatives. Starting a family later isn't the only reason this happens. Caretaking can come early for other unexpected reasons.
0: My mom started showing signs of dementia when she was like 55 or so. My name is John Adinaran and I'm from Philadelphia. I work as a data analyst where I'm doing a lot of like data science work and data analytics work. It's super fun, I love doing it.
2: In addition to caring for his mom, John and his wife have a child and another on the way. But this is something he's been planning for since he picked his major for college.
0: Throughout the entirety of my college career, I was always thinking about what came at the end of that, which was that I'd be taking care of my mom, and that was sort of like always on the forefront of my mind. So I was like, what's a job that I'd probably be able to, at some point, be able to do remotely? And I was like, well, it's going to be a job in computer science most likely. And I can say by the grace of God I was able to find a remote job.
2: Today on The Weeds, a growing piece of the care crisis, the so-called sandwich generation, the policies that created it, and the policies that could fix it. John's story is unique, but it's an example of the ways families are being stretched thinner and thinner as they try to bridge multiple care gaps.
0: I started caring for my mom when I was in college. The needs of her care have changed with the years. And at the beginning of it, it was more so like my mom just needed supervision. Because I started off with things like just forgetting her shoes or not knowing where she put something. Or then it started to progress to like other things. And as the progression continued, that's when she required more care to the point where she needed 24-7 supervision and 24-7 care. I never anticipated being like a sandwich generation caregiver at 25, 26. It's hard right now to care for my mom, like to provide her with the attention that she needs. We were thinking about, oh, wow, we have a baby now. And how are we going to navigate life with two people that are on two different ends of the spectrum of life?
2: I think it's so interesting that you talk about caring for people who are sort of at the end of the spectrums when it comes to the journey of life. And I'm wondering if you see any parallels in that care and also how did having a child change what it's been like caretaking for your mother?
0: Yeah, there are definitely parallels there. So I think the immediate parallel is just like the amount of care that's needed and the amount of attention. I need to help my mom to brush her teeth i need to help my mom with eating i have to help the baby with eating as well even like showering i help my mom to take a shower and i help the baby to bathe and like just that experience of water especially in like Christianity, there's a certain sort of like allegorical aspect to water like water being like about rebirth it's rebirth but then also water like it's like in baptism like that consecration of like going into the water like one dies to themselves. So I just think of like the process of my mom. She's bathing and my mom is also in the process of dying. So it's just so many parallels where I get so much insight into life. And it's like joy and sorrow both affixed together, like dancing together. But they also give me so much insight into how I can care better for both people.
2: Can you describe what a day in your life is like? Like walk me through who takes care of who? How do things get done?
0: So like on the day to day, like the... ADLs, the activities of daily living are like the basic things that I know that I need to get done like in regards to care. So that's like in the morning, it could be, you know, waking up my mom, taking her to the bathroom, helping her to change her clothes, helping her to brush her teeth, cleaning her up. And I mean, I would even include like listening to music as an ADL as well, because we have a playlist that um we've like been curating for quite some time. Like whenever my mom used to like hum any any song, like earlier in her progression, I would like try to find it. So I could like have that because I was like, okay, well, she might not know this song later on.
2: What are some of her favorite songs?
0: Uh, we listen to a lot of Nigerian praise and worship music. We're Nigerian. My mom was born in Nigeria, and she also really loves. Um, he's a a juju artist. I'm from Nigeria. His name is King Sunny Ade. So we have a lot of his classics on our playlist. One of her favorite songs is "All Right, Okay" by J Moss. So we pray that every morning. That's sort of like her pick me up song. Oh, that's song. so
2: yeah. That's a good upbeat one. That is, that's a really good one.
0: In terms of like, just like the load of Alzheimer's, like it's so taxing on her brain some days. Um, and she'll just wake up and she's like super exhausted and it's hard for her to open her eyes. But if you know, I play that song, like even if she's like not able to move or do much, like she'll be tapping and she'll just nod her head to the song. Yeah. So that's always something I always um, sort of like incorporate as like ritual in the day.
2: So you are Nigerian, and I'm curious how culture informs your caregiving and how caregiving is different across culture. Do you see culture shaping your caregiving and, you know, how you do this?
0: I think Nigerian culture is very much so historically and even contemporarily. Women do a lot of the caregiving, a lot of the caring for sick parents, a lot of the caring for elders. I mean, that's the the case in the United States as well. It's primarily black and brown women that are sort of like holding up the care infrastructure. We kind of live in a culture where I feel like maybe self-sacrifice isn't sought after. And and I think it can kind of have a negative connotation, but I think sacrificial love, kind of like what Dr. King was talking about in like the drum major instinct, where there's a certain sort of calling of like humility and like the act of like dispensing yourself for the benefit, like the edification of the other And I think I saw that a lot and like how my mom cared for us as children and 100 percent informed the way that I care now and the fact that I desire to care and to steward. I think she put that instinct in my heart in a lot of ways. My faith has as well, but like that cultural instinct of like you see a need and you just go to that need and um, you tend to it, especially when it it has something to do with someone who is vulnerable and needs uh, assistance.
2: What advice would you give someone who's listening to this and is at the beginning of their own caregiving journey?
0: Honestly, I would say, yeah, sometimes I have to just like take a deep breath and it really helps to just like, to sort of just like level yourself. Um, Cause it, it is, I mean, while I, I try to keep my composure, it is still a very like sorrowful experience. There's a lot of sadness in it. To be sort of at the forefront of seeing someone that you love so much, experiencing some of the deepest suffering of their life to not be able to like ameliorate that in any way. I think you can do like the most ordinary, the most basic, the most like continuous route actions with a lot of love. And you do those actions with so much love and care and attention and dignity. It's so transformative for the person that you're caring for. They might not be able to articulate it to you, but It's happening. And then also I would say, especially for caregivers that are like new in the sort of space to definitely do things like power of attorney, things that really end up becoming more difficult when the person that you're caring for isn't able to sign off on stuff. Things that are harder to do later are the things that are easiest to do like initially trying to get like a care directive going, like how does your loved one want to be taken care of? And I would also say, try to speak to a local area of aging if you have one, because like they usually have so many amazing resources and also to look for community because you will be able to find it, especially on Facebook. There are so many different caregiver support groups and they've been super life-giving for me. There really is something profound about being able to step into other people's um, journeys as well.
2: Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and coming on The Weeds.
0: Of course, this was such a joy to be on here.
2: I will definitely be lifting you and your family up. You all have made my prayer list. Thank
0: you so much, Jacqueline. That means a lot to me.
2: John's story is just one example of the care gaps facing millions of Americans. Up next, how we got here and what we can do about it. B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. It's the weeds. I'm John Quillen Hill. My colleague Anna North covers American family life here at Vox. In some of her most recent reporting, Anna explores the elder care crisis and why this moment feels so different.
3: We are looking at a time when the baby boom generation is aging into years when statistically more people need some form of care, some form of support, whether it be with medical care or whether it be with basic tasks like bathing or eating. The baby boom generation is a huge generation, right? So it's a really huge chunk of people in American life who are going to need this kind of support And at the same time, the number of people who are around to give that support is not the same as it once was, because baby boomers didn't have as many children as previous generations, and they're also more likely to be divorced than previous generations, so it's more common that someone wouldn't necessarily have a spouse to support them. So. A statistic I keep returning to is that in 2010, there were more than seven potential family caregivers for every person over 80. By 2030, the ratio is supposed to fall to 4 to 1, and by 2050, it'll be less than 3 to 1. So the way to think about that is it used to be that there could be seven people to come together to take care of each person, and that number is going down and down and down. So that has impacts for the people who need care and has impacts for the people who are giving that care, too.
2: So I think John's story, who we talked to earlier, is really striking. He is in his 20s, and he's caring for a baby. He has a sick mother, and he has another child on the way. He's juggling a lot. And when we spoke with him, he mentioned he's part of the sandwich generation. Can you walk us through what that term means?
3: Yeah, so the sandwich generation uh, is a term that refers to people who are kind of sandwiched between... Caring for children, young kids, and then also caring for a parent or an older relative. So they're kind of doing caregiving on both ends of the demographic spectrum. And it's becoming more common as people have children later in life. So uh, right now, about 25% of American adults and more than half of people in their 40s are in what's called a sandwich generation.
2: We already talked a little bit about the strain on these people in the sandwich generation. Just the amount of people that are available to care for each person who's growing older is lessening. But I'm also curious in what the outlook looks like for the caregivers. It seems like if a family member does take on that role, there's a really heavy burden on them. Is that a correct assumption? What are some of the numbers there? How do we know how this is impacting them?
3: In terms of numbers, one thing we can talk about is just costs. Care is expensive. We know this from child care, and it's true um, with elder care and with other kinds of family care, too. So just for context, the median annual cost of a full-time home health aide, so someone to come to your home and help take care of someone, that was almost $60,000 in 2021. And then a semi-private room in a nursing home was about $94,000 a year that year. So these are costs that a lot of families just can't pay. So if you can't afford someone to come in and take care of your family member, you're often doing it yourself. And even if you are providing care yourself as what people call a family caregiver or sometimes care partner— there are still costs, right, because the person might have medical needs, their devices, you know, things like a shower chair, medications, copays That can cost around $7,000 annually on average. So one small or large way to look at it is just to look at the expense. But then obviously there are a lot of intangibles. A lot of the folks I spoke to, a lot of the family caregivers spoke about just burnout. People talked about all the driving, just driving a family member to and from appointments, but then also driving to their own job. If you are in that sandwich generation, you're adding in, driving your kids to places, you know, feeling the fear of being the person who is really responsible for your loved one's health, your loved one's safety. Folks talked about the difficulty of caring across households. And then feeling like there's not enough support out there or not enough understanding. I think this is, again, where the cultural piece comes in, you know, I'm on a lot of group chats for parents, and, you know, we're always trading jokes or trading whatever wisdom back and forth. I think those groups exist for elder care, but it's just not as visible, so people can feel that they're really alone. And I think that goes especially true for people who are younger in their 30s or their 20s, where a lot of their peers aren't dealing with this yet. But, like, on top of all that, I do want to say—and I think John speaks to this really beautifully—that people find a lot of joy in caring for family members, including older family members. There can be this sense of giving back to someone who has given so much to you, and that there are also just special moments that people, you know, wouldn't trade for anything. So I don't want to make it sound like this is this thankless task, but it is work, and it's work that is often unsupported.
2: Are any of these resources covered by Medicare? How does that factor into all of this?
3: So, one of the hardest things I think is that people often sort of assume, especially younger people, I might have assumed this too, that Medicare will cover elder care, and it really doesn't exactly. There are certain things Medicare covers, but for a lot of people, it does not provide long-term care. Medicaid only really kicks in if people have a very, very low amount of money or assets. And so you get into situations where people would essentially have to spend everything they have, assuming they had any savings or assets to start out with. And so that's not always a trade that is workable for people and their families. There are resources available for families. At the same time, these large government programs that we think think of as being the safety net don't necessarily provide that safety net for people who may need care for an extended period of time.
2: So you've talked about the difference in cost between nursing homes and at-home caregiving. Why is there, you know, such a big difference between the two and how do they compare to each
3: other? Like, I imagine nursing homes are more like intensive. Is that what it is? There's there's so many things to think about when you think about like what setting is someone aging in? One thing to think about is that a lot of people, having seen what happened in 2020 and 2021, I think a lot of people have a preference for aging in place. So being in their home as long as possible. And having the services of a home health aid can extend that period when you can do that. You know, so if you still need help and you can have someone come visit your home, then that can really allow you to kind of be in your house and be in your community for much longer. The flip side is, you know, number one, not everyone even has a home. One of the folks I talked to for one of my stories made the point that the homeless population among seniors is really growing. So there's a lot of folks out there who You know, what does aging in place even look like for them? The other question is, can your home be made safe as you're getting older? Do you have stairs? Is your bathroom safe for an older person, for someone that might be vulnerable to falls? These are all considerations. So nursing homes take away some of that calculus. Obviously, it's a facility. You know, it's designed to be safe. On the other hand, someone can potentially be taken outside of their community. They can potentially be taken out of proximity to family. So those are all considerations. In terms of the cost, I mean, something I'll say about home health aides, and we've had really wonderful stories on Vox about this by other reporters, is that these are workers who are incredibly underpaid. Again, it's similar to the childcare space where this is very difficult work, often physical work, you know, lifting someone, bathing them, feeding them. And yet it's very, very poorly paid, and there are not a lot of labor protections. So... You know, you mentioned that $60,000 figure, that's a salary, right? That might not be actually the home health care aid salary. That might not be what they're taking home. So that's a consideration, too. And when folks think about sort of aging and elder care policy, they also think about the people who are caring for elderly people as a career and as a job and, you know, making things just for them, because right now it's really not just.
2: I think that's such a good point. It's expensive for the people who need the care, and then the people giving the care aren't making that much. It's 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 difficult.
3: It's really hard. And I think there's some sense, too, that a rising tide could lift all boats here, that it, we thought of... Home health care as something that was deserving of making a living wage, then would this become more visible? You know, would people realize like this is an important thing for our society? But I think all of that would kind of require really changing our priorities and understanding that care is something that's important to our economy and important to living well. And even though we've made maybe baby steps in that direction since 2020, it feels like there's a long way to go.
2: Why don't we talk about? elder care the same way we talk about child care. And, you know, we don't necessarily do a great job with child care (laughs) in this country, access to it, cost, all of that. But it seems like more of a conversation than elder care. And I wonder why that is. Is it, you know, people are living longer for the first time? Like, what's going on here?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question. I asked a lot of people as I was reporting out these pieces why we don't like to talk about aging. And a lot of people said we're afraid of talking about the future. A lot of people said we're an ableist society. Ashton Applewhite, who's a really passionate advocate on anti-ageism, talked about a lot of ageism and a lot of the sort of invisibilizing of aging is really about ableism and about not wanting to look at people who are not able-bodied, not wanting to think about what we would need to change in society to make sure that people who aren't able-bodied are having a just and pleasant and healthy life it can be more comfortable to look at childcare because we don't have to confront our own aging. You know, childhood already happened. I think there's also the sense that America is a young nation and we like thinking about kids, but America's not really a young nation anymore. We are getting older demographically. And so it's just going to be super important to focus on these issues and not shy away from them. We've been talking about the cost
2: of care. Does long-term care insurance make a difference here?
3: So long-term care insurance is something that you'll kind of see like a little paragraph about in every story that you read about aging or elder care. And the reason it's only a paragraph is that long-term care insurance is typically really expensive and or it doesn't cover very much. So it ends up not being a super viable option for a lot of families. That said, there are efforts at the state level to kind of make it more affordable or to subsidize it in certain ways. Washington State is working on a state-based long-term care insurance program that could be an interesting model. So it's possible that we might get some better versions of this, but right now, like on the private market for a lot of people, it doesn't help that much. It doesn't help that much. Unfortunately, there's a theme
2: emerging in this episode. After the break, we get into the policies that seek to change it.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself.
2: So let's discuss what policy is in place right now, because there is clearly a need for support, both with the costs and also the labor of caregiving. I want to start with the Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA. What does this offer family members who are caring for a loved one?
3: Yeah, so the FMLA offers 12 weeks unpaid leave, essentially with job protection. So FMLA, there's a number of situations in which it can apply, and one of them is if you need to take care of an older family member, and basically it means you won't lose your job if you want to take 12 weeks of leave, and you can take that concurrently or you can split it up. The limitations of that are, you know, often you need a lot more than 12 weeks, and also it's not paid. Mm. There are states that provide for some paid leave for family care. So there are a few states that have looked at this and said we should augment it. And that could be a growing movement. But at the federal level, the FMLA only provides, only guarantees unpaid time off.
2: President Biden's Build Back Better Act aimed at rebuilding the middle class through a lot of different efforts. Has that been helpful for caregivers at all?
3: Yeah, so Build Back Better included a couple of provisions that would be helpful for elder care and for families that are trying to care for an aging relative One is just that it improves paid leave. So replacing some of that unpaid FMLA time with paid time. You know, when I talk to folks who are advocates around aging, who are advocates around elder care, around these issues, paid leave was really a top thing that they mentioned. Just being able to take any time off with pay would be huge. That said, sometimes the amount of time that you would need to be off or the amount of time that you would need to have flexibility could be much longer than your typical paid leave policy goes. So that's a kind of an issue and a question mark, too. The other thing that Build Back Better did that I will mention here is it included a provision for boosting pay for home health aides. Mm. That was often discussed sort of in the same breath as child care policy and much the same as boosting the pay of child care workers. I think boosting the pay of home health aides, number one, You know, would help this category of workers lead better lives. But I think also move towards legitimizing this as a fundamental need that families have and that the country should be willing to pay for and spend money on. Were that to come to pass, I think it would be a way of the country sort of putting its money where its mouth is and saying, like, yeah we care about this population. We care about the increasingly large percentage of people who are older and need some form of support. And we care about the people who provide that support and we're going to pay for it.
2: That's the federal level, but what's going on at the state level? Are there states that are offering coverage or assistance when it comes to caregiving costs?
3: Yeah, there are a few states who are doing different things. A few states are experimenting with programs to allow Medicaid to cover care at home and in the community. So some of that includes actually paying family caregivers through Medicaid. New York State does this, where if you are caring for an older relative, you can actually receive some payment. It's typically really small and doesn't cover your cost of living necessarily, And these policies aren't the norm across all 50 states, but it's something that's being tried out. It's becoming more common. Then there's also this Washington state uh, long-term care insurance program, which might be something that more states would take up or would discuss. I think it's something that experts are kind of interested in. So there is action, but there's nothing like a revolution yet. Have we seen the impact of these policies yet, or
2: is it still too early to tell?
3: I think it's a little too soon, especially for the Washington State program, because that, you know, really hasn't been fully rolled out yet. I do think we can say that there's been a little bit more just sort of cultural attention paid to this issue. So I think, you know, there's there's a sense of it being more in the conversation. So in that way, I think maybe we're seeing an impact. I think it might take a few years to see if people's lives are being materially improved by some of the financial policies that we've seen.
2: I'm wondering how culture— fits into all of this, you know, both American culture at large and how we view aging, but also individual. Like, I know for a lot of Black families, it's like, all right, nursing home, last resort, I'm supposed to have, like, mom at home with me. And there are lots of people from lots of different cultures who feel that way or who don't. And I'm, I'm yeah, I wonder how that is factoring into how this is shaping policy.
3: You know, I think in my conversations with family caregivers, this came up a lot. Family by family, and also just sort of demographically around the country, depending on what your community looks like, people have really different ideas about what is the responsibility that the community has to aging people, what is the responsibility the family has to aging people, what is the role of an older person within the family. This is really not a homogeneous issue. I think, in so many ways, in the last few years, we're seeing the ways that obsession with a nuclear family that's like, Two parents, two kids, you know, picket fence in the suburbs. That's a very white, it's a very sort of middle-class, upper-middle-class ideal. Mm. The limitations of that have just become so clear, both the ways that it's not accessible to a lot of people and also the ways that even those people for whom it is accessible, it really fails them. And I think the fact that that American dream doesn't even include older people, like where are they? They're invisible in that house. I think that's just one of the ways that it's sort of letting everybody down, And there are a lot of thinkers in a variety of communities, both in the United States and obviously around the world, who are showing a lot of other ways to continue to enfold older people within families and within communities in a way that's more loving and inclusive and also recognizes that, like, you don't suddenly stop being a person when you turn 65 or 75 or 85 or 95.
2: So I want to dig into more about what communities are doing to fill in these gaps. In your piece, you mentioned one organization called Sisters Aging with Grace and Elegance. Tell us about them and what kind of support and resources they provide.
3: Yeah, so this is a group co-founded by Carleen Davis and Kiara Harris. And uh, I spoke with Carleen Davis, and she just talked about the realization that she didn't have children, that there wasn't necessarily someone that was like the default who was going to take care of her as she got older. And she thought of a lot of other women, especially Black women, who might be in that position, and that there wasn't necessarily something specifically for folks that were in her shoes. So she ended up co-founding this group, Sisters Aging with Grace and Elegance, to really work on behalf of Black women in their 40s and beyond. She talked about wanting to create safe, culturally specific, and culturally affirming spaces for Black women to come together to think about and plan for their aging journeys. And so that group does outreach, does education, advocacy work. And it was fascinating to talk with her because policy takes such a long time and you can't you can't always depend on it. And so the idea of communities and neighborhoods and families sort of coming together to figure something out and that has is kind of what has had to happen. Um, in a lot of places. Um, The other group I'll mention in the same vein is called the Villages Movement, not to be confused with, I think there is a retirement community called the Villages. Oh, yeah. It's notorious. They turn up down there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's actually a network of different neighborhoods around the country. They're mostly nonprofit. And um, it's really neighbors kind of come together and support one another. So rides to places are like a really big thing they provide. So a ride to the doctor, a ride to see a relative, you know, maybe meals, um, checking in on someone, sort of formalizing the idea of being a good neighbor, which is something that can be especially helpful for older people.
2: Yeah, I think that's interesting because, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how families just look different than they used to. People having fewer children, if they're having children at all, you know, people are getting married later if they're getting married at all. And uh, during your reporting, did you discover any new shifts in modern families? Like, is caregiving reshaping where and how we live and, you know, how we think of this. Like, I think in a younger context, I have all these conversations with friends about chosen family. We are a community. We're doing this. But I'm wondering how aging factors into that, if at all, at this moment.
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is that Carleen Davis did share with me a report on older people in Southern California, And a number of the folks spoken to in that report talk about caring or receiving care from people who aren't necessarily their biological family, so that's a reality that's definitely out there. I think also something that turned up—and you mentioned how people live and where they live—I do think that there is starting to be an increasing demand for multi generational living. Obviously that's something that's super common around the world that hasn't always been as common in the United States. But now we're seeing more—you know, you think about, like, the rise of the accessory dwelling unit in California and other places. And obviously, like, in order to have an ADU, you have to have a house that could have that unit in it. So there's a certain level of privilege there. But just as I talk to people, even around the country— I talked to folks who had thought about pooling resources with other family members so they could buy a place. I talked to one family where they had done that. So two adults and their children, they pooled money with her mother and they bought a house together with kind of space for everyone. Again, you have to have money to be able to do that. And there also has to be construction that's amenable to that. So it has to be a house where like some part of that house that is safe for someone to grow older in. But I do think that more so than maybe a few years ago, there's this sense of wanting to have togetherness and how can we sort of change the ways that we live to be able to foster that, whether it's with our own biological family or, as you say, with more chosen family. So I'm excited to sort of see how that plays out and if it ends up impacting pausing policy to the ways we think about care.
2: So obviously, caregiving is really expensive and it's time consuming and it can be emotionally and physically exhausting for those that are providing that care. And depending on the circumstances, it really can be a full-time job. In your reporting, what did you see people doing in order to prepare taking that caregiver role on?
3: One common thing I heard from a lot of groups and individuals is just the need for like more training opportunities for family caregivers. It's something that a lot of people are kind of thrust into. Like, yeah, okay, this is your mom. So you know how to like care for someone you love, but it could be complicated medical stuff that you're suddenly expected to do on your own. There are resources available. One recent development is that there's a proposal for Medicare to start covering more training for family caregivers. And that's something you could kind of get from a medical professional, is my understanding. That you would request, like, okay, well, I'm going to be caring for this person in their home. I need you to train me on how to do XYZ. And that could be something that would be reimbursed by Medicare. Then there's also a lot of resources online. The National Alliance for Caregiving offers some resources. There are more more local groups that might have classes. It's the kind of thing where if you search for this and advocate for it, you can find it, but it's also the kind of thing that everybody who's an expert in the space says, like, just needs to be more widespread. We need to acknowledge that this isn't something that people just know how to do by instinct. It's like another big parallel with child care is the idea that, like, this is not skilled and it's just something you do out of love. And it's like, you might, this might be a loved one that you're caring for, but this is skilled labor and people do need help navigating through it. But the other thing I'll say is that caregivers talk to me about the importance of caring for their own mental health. And in particular, one person I spoke with mentioned that when she found a therapist who actually had also worked in like a hospice setting, that was really beneficial for her. So I think to the extent that people have the means and health insurance and all the things you need in America to access therapy, that can be really crucial. And I think training for therapists around these issues is also really key.
2: Anna North, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for us today. Thank you to John Dinnerin and Anna North for joining me. This episode was produced by Caitlin Boguki and Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode with help from Nick Walsh. Serena Solon fact-checked it for us. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Pullen-Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com gif give.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself.